Anyhow, okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness and for Your mighty Word. Nothing can give us the support, the confidence, the courage, the security, everything that people are looking for, most of them don't find because they look everywhere except in Your Word. And we thank You that You have given us this time to recharge our spiritual batteries, The world has a way of whittling us down into doubt and fear. And Your Word builds us back up. So we pray that You will help us to be built up this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I was at a conference this uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. It was the Schaefer Theological Seminary Annual Pastors Conference at West Houston Bible Church in Houston. It was a very good conference. There were uh, most of the speakers I knew personally. In fact, all of them I knew personally were friends of mine. On the, the first speaker on Tuesday was David Roseland. David Ro- Roseland is a—he's he, a, just a fantastic guy. Graduated from West Point, went to Iraq, then went to Dallas Theological Seminary. Graduated from there, and now he's pastoring a church in Connecticut. He's taking over the church that Robbie Dean used to, Dr. Robbie Dean, I should say, uh, used to pastor. And he's, Dr. Dean is now the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. His, his uh, paper, his message was entitled, Not Warfield or Schofield, Schaefer's Biblical Model of Sanctification. That in itself, in the title is enough to put some of you to sleep. Most of you probably know who Schofield was, but you not, might not know who Warfield was. And there was, at that, at that time, uh, they were contemporaries, and there was a difference of opinion on sanctification between the two. Warfield was a little older than Schofield, and he considered Schofield a Johnny-come-lately. And he was very hard on Schofield's view of, of sanctification. Actually, we're talking about experiential sanctification, which all of you all should know what that is. And Schofield was very kind back to this war field, showing the great capacity he had to apply the doctrines that he had learned. We call that unconditional or impersonal love. Anyway, David did such a great job. He took something that could have been very dry and boring and just made it a pleasure. And you just didn't want him to stop. And when you can do that with uh, historical things that essentially still have dust on them, you're you're a good speaker. And then Charlie Clough was the next speaker. Many of you have heard of him. Uh, Charlie graduated from MIT. Uh, You would not be exaggerating to say that he is a brain. He sees things and has insights that many people do not have. And his his message was uh, was sanctification under the Old Old Testament theocracy. Now that's very interesting too, but 
Was there sanctification in the Old Testament? Was it the same as the churches? Different than the churches? He addressed that issue. And then Dr. George Meisinger was the first speaker after, after lunch. And he, Dr. Meisinger, is the president of, theological, of, of Schaefer Theological Seminary. And his message is on the underpinnings of experiential sanctification, Romans 6, 123. And the next speaker covered Romans 7 and the next speaker covered Romans 8 because there is a progression there. And we had... Dr. Andy Woods that covered Romans chapter 7 on sanctification. Can man obey on his own? Many of you will recognize that Romans chapter 7 is where Paul was saying, that which I would want to do, I don't do, but that which I do is what I don't want to do. You know, it's, In other words, he had the same problem we have. And he brought out something that was interesting because I didn't know this. I didn't even know that there was a, an assertion that some people say that this was the Apostle Paul before he, made, before he was converted. Now, the Reformed theology group would say that. that would, Reformed theologians are Calvinistic. And they make the allegation that uh, when Paul was struggling with his old sin nature, they said that this was before he was converted because in their theology, you are you persevere. And I've talked to those who buy into Reformed theology who have never even heard of grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. They don't know anything about it. And the sad thing about it is so many people who don't understand grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit and how to go from carnality into spirituality, they always are doubting their salvation because when they're carnal, they recognize they're carnal. Rather than acknowledging their sins to God as per 1 John 1, 9, they think that they need to be reconverted or else they think that they maybe were never converted to begin with and that they have to again, believe in Jesus Christ. I used to go to churches that it was typical they had an altar call and people would come down and they would rededicate their life. All, just so many times rededicating their lives. And the reason they were doing that, they didn't understand spirituality. They didn't understand once you're, you're, you're carnal, how do you get to be spiritual again? So there was a lot in uh, Dr. Andy Woods' uh, paper. I, I really liked uh, Andy, he's a, he's a big old tall drink of water, uh, and he's a Ph.D. There's a lot of Ph.D.s there, but he's just a regular guy and very easy to understand. And then we had uh, Dan Ingram, which is the pastor in a, at the, I think, I can't remember the name of his church, but it's in Washington, D.C. And then he gave uh, a paper on Romans 8, and his was entitled, Flesh Versus Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. And it says, Both and or either are. That was the name of his message. Romans 8 is so rich. And there's a, there's a big difference between Romans 7 where Paul is struggling with his old sin nature 
And then in chapter 8, it seems like it's a, no, a new person. That's why some say, well, he was, this is before he was saved in chapter 7. He was struggling with the old sin nature. But in chapter 8, uh, now he's a believer. But that's, that's erroneous. That's not the case. What, you won't find the word spirit in chapter 7 of Romans. But in chapter 8, he starts explaining the spirit. What he was doing in Romans chapter 7, he was trying to deal with the sin problem on his own power. And, it, and it, 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 he was being eat, eaten up. But in chapter 8, he introduces the Spirit, that we live the Christian life by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's the difference there. So he expanded on that and made it clear. And then <clears throat> Mark Perkins is the pastor of uh, Frontline Bible Church in Denver, Colorado. And his paper was on mysticism, a false model of the Christian's communion with God and sanctification. You know, there's so many people that really, you say sanctification and it means nothing to them. They can identify it as a religious term, a religious word, but if you ask them what does it mean, they don't have a clue. You can ask most Christians, church-going Christians, what does sanctification mean? And they don't have a clue. And today what is really unfortunate is you have many Christians that are defaulting over into mysticism and thinking that mysticism is sanctification. You have the, uh, the formal worship. Uh, you have uh, people who engage in contemplative prayer. I don't know if you're familiar with these terms. Um, contemplative prayer, uh, surely we need to contemplate things. But this is a technical word for uh, people who pray. And sometimes they'll say, well, we're going to pray for this certain area. And they leave the Holy Spirit out. It actually turns into a works system of prayer. And that can very easily morph into mysticism, the whirling dervish, people who cut themselves and do all manner of bizarre things thinking that they're getting closer to God. Do you remember when I taught First Kings and remember when Elijah went to the 400 prophets of Baal and they were trying to call down their God to consume the sacrifice. What did they do? They were dancing and leaping about. And they were cutting themselves, self-mutilation. They were doing all those things in order for their God to act. And of course, He did not. And the same thing is going on today. Even Christians are getting into this. So mysticism is a, is a, a big part of those who are confused about sanctification. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, Bruce Bumgardner, he has a church in Houston. I can't remember the name of his church right off the bat, uh, but uh, I was on the ordination board when Bruce Bumgardner was ordained, and his was forgiveness and sanctification. And that was, that was very relevant. So many of us, tend to carry around grudges and we don't really forgive other people even though we might 
kind of put it in the back of our mind, we still don't treat them in a way that we should if we had truly forgiven them. And he said, if you do that, then God isn't going to forgive you. And if God hasn't forgiven you, forget about being sanctified. We're talking about experientially. So that's kind of a breakdown. And then, of course, every night, uh, Dr. Dean was speaking on uh, sanctification. The first night, uh, he spoke on... I've got to get my glasses here. <clears throat> How does a Christian grow? Part one, and that's abiding in Christ. Now you would think, what's the big deal about abiding in Christ? It seems like every little nuance is twisted today. Because you think, well, should we abide in Christ? Yes, we should. But there are many who believe that abiding in Christ, they don't see it as experiential sanctification as a believer growing. They use it as a litmus test to determine whether they are truly saved or not. Lordship salvation. If, Lord, if, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. That type of thing. Again, not understanding what sanctification is, especially spiritual or experiential sanctification. And they, they always want to tie it, sanctification to eternal salvation. And there is a positional sanctification. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we are set apart for blessing. But it's easy to get confused. So he taught the first night on how, uh, <clears throat> how does a Christian grow? And part two was walking by the Spirit. And part three is walking in the light. By the way, I have uh, we're sending an order in for the DVDs of the entire conference, and we'll have them in I don't know three or four weeks, probably something like that. And I encourage all of you to take these DVDs and take them home, listen to them, have a pad, and take notes. They're very informative. We have a lot of them back there, and this one in particular. Any. I've gone to conferences before where I would recommend maybe three out of eight messages that were given that I think you could really benefit from. Some of the others were very technical, very theologically superior to what most people could handle, and the speaker was just as dry as can be monotone speaking like this, and now we will go to page number six. That type of thing. So, with that said, it's time for us to get cracking. Let's turn our Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. It's been a while since we were here. We weren't here Tuesday. So let's read in our Bibles 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and following. Now we request you, brethren, with regards to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, 
that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a messenger, uh, a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless, number one, the apostasy comes first from ophistomy, which means departure. Now, some could say that that's a departure from the truth. That's one way to take it. It also can mean a departure spatially, meaning to depart from planet Earth. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, that's two things that must take place before the day of the Lord begins. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. What is that? What do we know that as in the Bible? The abomination of desolation mentioned in Daniel chapter 9 and a few other places. Verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? You know these things. This, this is a mild rebuke. He's telling them you should know better than to buy into the idea, the false concept that the day of Lord has already begun. Verse 6. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. So, we're going to take up our study tonight with verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I'll put notes up on the board if you'd like to see those. We're going to start with this phrase, only he who now restrains. We've already gone over who the he may be. You might have noticed, one of the things that we've noticed, is in verse 6 it says, so that... <clears throat> And you will know what restrains him. What is in the neuter gender. Sound like it's a thing. But then you get to verse 7. It says, For he who now restrains. And we, I made the point that the Holy Spirit is sometimes refer, is, is referred to in the neuter gender because pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, is in the neuter gender. And it can mean breath, it can mean spirit. But sometimes he is referred to in the masculine gender. And so here you have in verse 6 the neuter gender referencing the restrainer. In the very next verse it's the masculine gender 
which perfectly fits with the identification of the Holy Spirit. We went over the idea that it could be Michael, the archangel. We went into detail about that. I gave you reasons why uh, Michael being the restrainer simply does not fit. And then we looked at the church's influence on this. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We hopefully at this moment are all filled with the Holy Spirit. Hopefully, we continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit most of our day. And that has a restraining influence on evil. And when all church-age believers are raptured, they leave this earth, that also is a restraining influence that will no longer be there. I'm not saying that we are the restrainer. But if the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, which I think is who Paul is, is the meaning of who it is, that's the identification of who it is, then if his restraining ministry on the evil one, the Antichrist, is going to be removed, certainly us, church-age believers, being removed in the rapture would certainly be a part of that. So it says, now only he who now restrains. That is, you actually have two words here. You have ha, H-O, which is an article, and it's the nominative singular masculine, and kot echo, which is also a nominative singular masculine. And it, kata means down, echo means to hold, means to hold down or to restrain. And, of course, the participles in masculine gender. <coughs> so, some think the restrainer is human government, but the Greek word for government is not in the masculine gender, but is in the feminine. Also, it is often the promoter of evil rather than the restrainer of it. So, those who think that this is human government that is going to be restraining evil... I would argue that maybe in some places they, that might be true, but in most places they are the promoter of evil rather than the restrainer of it. The active voice indicates that the restrainer himself has the power and ability to restrain wickedness and the revealing of Antichrist until he can restrain this wickedness and he can restrain Antichrist being revealed until... His time until it is God's time for, he to be, for Him to be revealed. And then he, would, then he will be taken out of the way. Here's the point. Only God has the supernatural power and ability to do this. How powerful and how prevalent, I could even say ubiquitous, is evil. It's, it's nearly like gravity. Anywhere you go, there's going to be evil. It's not just in one location. It's worldwide. And who is the ruler of this world? Satan is the ruler of this world. And he is, well, he epitomizes evil. And I don't think there's anyone 
outside of God the Holy Spirit, of course, any member of the Trinity, but I think the one referenced is the Holy Spirit who has the power and ability to suppress this because Satan is more powerful than any of us. He's more powerful than just about any angel. So I think you can make that argument and be on pretty firm ground that only God has that power to restrain this Antichrist and reveal him at the proper time, in God's time. And this restrainer will do so until he's taken out of the way. Have I already taught this? Have I taught this to y'all already? Y'all remember this? I think this is when I made my exit. Y'all remember that? This is well. I, 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 this is when I was. Yeah, I, it, I made this point when I was re, rebutting the idea that Michael, the archangel, could be the restrainer because of the word that is used, and they said it, instead it's standing up or rising. They said it means to stand still, like he's going to no longer be active. And I said, standing still is not the same as being taken out of the way, removed. <clears throat> so when God decides to remove the restrainer, the Antichrist will be revealed. This will, I don't, I, I have trigger, but I changed it and it didn't get changed on this paper. This will allow, is a better word, this will allow the judgment phase of the day of the Lord where all unbelievers, Jew and Gentiles, will suffer the worst period of human history. The church, the bride of Christ, will depart via the rapture before this happens. So I want you to understand, it's when that Antichrist is removed, something has to happen before he's removed, or else it's, it's, it happens nearly at the same time. And that is, the restrainer has to be removed so that the Antichrist can come on the scene. So we have to depart. The Antichrist has to, has to be revealed, which means the restrainer has to be removed. And then that horrible time will begin. And it cannot, this is what Paul is just hammering here, it cannot happen until these things have happened. And you should know better because I told you so. That's, I'm not telling you that. That's what Paul told his wife. So if I ever come across kind of strong and say, what's the matter with y'all? I told you this. Well, I'm just copying Paul. Second <laughs> Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. This is what I worked on today. From the time I woke up till the time that I left, I was working on actually not all three of these verses. I didn't get to verse 10. But here we go. And then that lawless one, lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. I have one of the young people in here tonight that I was with yesterday. And I was hammering on them 
how important it is to be a truth seeker. Nothing that young people do in the academic realm, no matter what school they're in, whether it's public school or private school, even comes close to the importance of what they get here. Here. And what all not no I did they say only you were born because you were going to be fat, skinny, ugly, nothing you had nothing. Mr. Joe Griffin. Means that from human side, God side, you are what He wants you to be. And then with God, getting to know Him, being a relationship with Colonel David here, we come with these pastors holy ground. But compared to how many pastors that are out here, but I'm talking about not you're concentrating, you're learning, and the Holy Spirit is teaching you. He's the one that's clear. He's the one that is in long-term memory. When you're doing that, it's going to affect you for all eternity. And every time someone makes a decision, I don't need that. I mean, after all, there's not many left on American Idol. It's getting down to the end. I've got to see who's... I, got, I can't miss that. Or... Anything, any any excuse that you can have. I submit to you, there is no excuse. There is no legitimate reason apart from you can't physically get here. Whether you're, you have no transportation or whether you're ill and you just can't make it. Outside of those type of reasons, there is no legitimate ground. And you think that you're going to just, oh, well, so what, la-di-da. There's going to be something called the judgment seat of Christ. And every one of us are going to stand before the God of the universe and we will be evaluated. Actually, it's our time on earth that's going to be evaluated as to was I important to you or not? What did, what did the Word of God mean to you? And did you, did you just take a bunch of notes and file them up on the shelves and say, oh man, I'm a spiritual giant. Come over to my house. I'll show you. My closet has got more tapes and notes that you can... It's wonderful. Just let me impress you with all those notes. Just learning it will not cut it. You have to apply it. It has to be so real that you can't help yourself but talk about what you learn about your great God to other people. And every chance you have, you're telling them about God and His wonderful plan for you. And He has a plan for them also. See, this is what I'm seeing in this sanctification thing. Most people can't think of the box of... of Salvation in the salvific term of talking about eternal life. Probably 90% or more of the Christians that you will come in contact with don't have a clue what, e what experiential sanctification is about. They think, well, I'm saved. Now, what do I do now? Well, I'm going to be moral. I'm going to be as moral as I can be. Well, that's not a bad thing, but unbelievers are moral. 
You know who some of the best neighbors you can have are? Jehovah Witnesses. You know why? Because they think they're getting to heaven on their morality. They would rather cut off their arm up to the elbow before they would go in and steal your something out of your garage. They need a chainsaw, and there it is out there. They make great neighbors because they, they're more moral than most of us. I can't speak for you. I can speak for me. They can hit their hand, their thumb with a hammer and say, oh, shucks. I can't do that. Just ask the guys that work around me. <laughs> and then the lawless one will be revealed. We'll start with that phrase right there. Paul makes it very clear that nothing begins until the restrainer is removed. This verse spans a seven-year period. Do you see that? We see that right in the first, right off the bat. And then the lawlessness one, lawless one will be revealed. When does that happen? Do I need to put the timeline up? It happens at the very beginning, remember? The day of the Lord can't even start till that happens. And then what do we do? Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth. When is that going to happen? At the very end of the judgment phase of the day of the Lord. We could call that the end of the tribulation. We could call that the end of Daniel's 70th week. So this, this verse is covering seven years. Seven years' time. Now I might say this. There's nowhere you can, you can go in the Bible and that tells you that the tribulation is going to be seven years. But it does give it in months and days, and it says a time, times, and half a time, which is, you know what that is? When it's talking about half of it, it's a time is a year, times are two year, and a half time is a half time, a half, a half a year. And that's talking about half of the tribulational period, which is three and a half years. So it's covering this whole, this whole period. So it starts at the beginning of the tribulation when the Antichrist is revealed to the end of it when Jesus Christ comes to set up His millennial kingdom. Here we have another clear indication that God is in complete control. Satan has no power to bring the Antichrist onto the world scene because Satan is being restrained and he can't do a thing about it. Can you imagine the middle attitude sins that he must have because he gets so frustrated? Every time he has some guy that he thinks, oh man, this is going to be the best Antichrist ever. I don't think he'll be calling the Antichrist. He might be calling him by name. I don't know who he is. I can assure you Satan has one in mind right now. And it's very possible, if not probable, that he is alive and well today. That is possible. I'm not saying it's a fact, but it's absolutely possible. And he's been doing this for 2,000 years. I don't know how many generations are in 2,000 years, 
But he had to have quite a few folks to manage this. And do you think that he would hesitate for an instant to bring Antichrist on the scene if he could? What's happening the whole time that he's waiting? More and more people are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and that's more nails in his coffin. He didn't want that to happen. This is the third time in this chapter that the word revealed is used and every time it's in the passive voice. This means that the Antichrist will not be revealed or become a man of international prominence by his own effort. You understand that? He's going to be revealed passive voice. He is the subject and he will be revealed, meaning it's passive voice. He's going to receive this. He cannot bring it about by his own effort. He will come out of obscurity and receive worldwide acclaim by the power and ability of someone other and greater than himself. Do you all have any questions? You're all kind of staring. I mean, I guess it's thinking, concentrating. Okay. The phrase, this is interesting. I'm I'm trying to show you the importance of the passive voice and how really helpless the Antichrist, even though he's going to be the world power. He's going to be the greatest power ever, world ruler. But I want to show you it's it's not coming from himself. The phrase, it was given to him, is found in Revelation chapter 6, 2, 6, 4, 13, 5, and 7 and 15. In each phrase, it refers to the Antichrist or one associated with him. In other words, it was given to him to wage war against the saints. It was given to him to do this. It was given, in other words, that puts it essentially in the passive for him. He's receiving this. He's not going to accomplish this on his own. Why? Because there's no human that is, that is capable of, of achieving the things that this one man is going to be going to achieve, and it's because it's not a comes from him and his power, it's coming from a greater power. This suggests that even after he has been revealed and is promulgating his reign of terror, he depends on the power and ability of someone else. Now, who might this be? We know that Satan empowers Antichrist with his super abilities. Here's a verse for you. Revelation chapter 13b through 4a. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon. The dragon is Satan. Because he gave his authority to the beast, which is Antichrist. Authority here, dunamis, means power. He gave the power to the Antichrist. The Antichrist is totally dependent upon Satan. Get this. Antichrist has less power than Satan, but Satan has less power than God. Satan can do nothing unless God allows it. You got that? So, Antichrist can't come on the scene until the restrainer is removed And then Satan is going to empower him to do all these things. 
But who's in control of removing the restrainer? The ultimate power. God Himself. In fact, I think the restrainer is God in the Holy Spirit. The only reason that Satan will be able to manifest his evil power over the earth for seven years is because God allows him to do so. You see, a lot of people think that Satan and God are in this big struggle. Then a big wrestling match, boxing match, whatever. And they think it's going to culminate at the tribulation and we can't wait to see how it's going to turn out. <laughs> not hardly. Satan is not in God's weight classification. I don't know what they all are, but I can tell you this. God is a super heavyweight and Satan is a featherweight. So Satan is only going to be able to do what God allows him to do. However, God will not allow him to achieve certain goals. Before I get to that, I want to, I want to say this. I want to ask you a question. Satan is going to be able to reveal Antichrist, empower him, promote him, and bring on the worst time of history that there will ever be. And God is allowing him to do it. It's Jesus Christ who peels the seals off of the book, off the scroll. He's bringing all this about. Why would He do that? Give me two reasons. Can you? Can you give me one reason? Well, it's the righteous thing to do, first of all, because the, the world is going to be full of God-hating, Christ-rejecting, grace ignoring unbelievers. So he's righteous in judging that. What's the second reason? What? Well, yeah, the angelic conflict. This is, the, this is one of the crashing blows of the angelic conflict. But there's one reason you all need to remember. What about Israel? Oh... This is what it's going to take to bring Israel to her knees and to look up. And he's doing it out of love. When God told the, the Israelites to annihilate the Canaanites and these evil people there, same thing. They were, he did a righteous thing. He wouldn't act until their iniquity was full. And he also did it to protect his people. And that's what he's doing here. He's doing it to save his people. I just want to throw that in because we need to keep that in mind because some people think, oh, he must be a monster. It must be a monster God to bring them the worst time in history there ever was. Don't ever question God's righteousness and don't ever question that God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And we live in such a plastic world these days. Don't you want, see, when we see justice these days, people are horrified. When people use the rod and spank their children, <gasps> call the Child Protective Services, abuse, violence. 
in the book I wrote in there, the booklet about rearing children, I have one specific, I have a chart that tells you the difference between rearing a child and using corporal punishment and violence. Totally different, two different things. Michael, you had your hand up. <laughs> Kicking out the illegal aliens, yeah. We went over that, remember? Satan has wrongly taken over the title deed of planet Earth. God allowed him to do it. It's part of the angelic conflict, like you were saying. But he's going to take it back. That's when he's going to take it back. You think Satan's going to lie down and say, okay, well, I guess I'm kind of tired anyway. Go ahead and take it. No, he's going to fight tooth and nail right to the end. And when Satan ups the ante, what does God do? He ups it higher. Here's the thing. God can go higher than Satan can. Satan's supposed to be this... I'm not trying to you know, make light of him. But what I don't sometimes understand is how can he be this super genius and try to box with God? I don't know. That's one of those inscrutable things. Because everything that he does has already been prophesied. I mean, if I was saying... <laughs> that sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Well, I'll go ahead and finish it. If I was Satan, I would think, well, you know what I'll do? I'll just never reveal Antichrist and it'll prove God out a liar, and there you go. I guess he just can't help himself. He's so evil, he's got to do it. I don't, you know, I'm telling you things that are inscrutable. I don't know. But he's going to do it. He's going to reveal Antichrist. It's prophesied. And he's going to do it in God's time frame. And all he has to do is not do it. Well, that's what he's always trying to do is prove God is not righteous. Why? Because God has already sentenced him to lake of fire. And there's a trial going on. And if he can prove that God is unfair or catch him in a lie, he can, he can squash the whole thing. He can take over the universe. So just don't reveal Antichrist. But it's going to happen. And he's a genius. I'd say he's a little bit smarter than I am or you are. These are one of those inscrutable things. Is that you see, God, has, he knows the script. He's seen the video. He knows the whole thing. It's going to happen because he's already seen the movie. And yet it's got to be played. Well, it's just a wonderful thing. Our God is wonderful. He is omniscient, and that's a big thing. Now, I said that he will manifest his evil power on earth to achieve certain goals. But God will not allow him, that would be Antichrist, and even Satan as far as that goes, to achieve certain goals such as complete annihilation of the Jews. See, the restrainer is going to be removed, which means the restraint that has always or has been on there ever since Paul wrote the letter... I, probably even from the beginning of from Adam. It's going to be off, but it's not. God still has controls on Satan. Even though the restraining, the normal restraining influence is gone, God says, okay, you want to kill Jews? I'll allow you to kill Jews. Up to two-thirds. 
no more. There's no way that you are going to annihilate my people. I'll let you kill so many that it gets their attention, but you're not going to annihilate them. Do you think Satan would annihilate all of them if he had the chance? Who do you think in the Mideast is trying to promote the leaders of these Muslim countries to annihilate the Jews? Why do they have a burning desire to annihilate the Jews? They get in the streets and they jump and they chant, annihilate the Jews, get away with the Jews, the Koran, all of it is about that. Who's behind that? It's Satan. Now, if the restraint is new and all the Christians are gone and the restraining influence that has been on him all this time is gone, he would like nothing better than to what? Annihilate the Jews, right? That's why the Jews are going to suffer more then. Well, everybody will suffer more then. But his intent is to annihilate the Jews because if he annihilates the Jews, guess what? He's won the angelic conflict. He's made God a liar. Because God has promised unconditionally in covenants certain things to the Jews. And there has to be Jews there, still alive, to receive the fulfillment of those promises or else God can't, can't carry forth. He can't bring about His promise. Don't you see this as a huge unbelievably, I don't, I don't want to call it wonderful, it's just a phenomenal thing that's going on and we are part of it. God has allowed us not only to be spectators, and I'm not talking about in the here and after, I'm talking about in the right now. We're part of it. He's depending on us not only to get the gospel out, He's depending upon us to go and tell people, hey, guess what? Jesus is coming back and He is going to kick Satan's butt. And you better get saved before it happens. Are you going to go through misery you can't even believe? Now, you don't have to say those words, but use your own words. You, this should motivate us. This is the great contest of all time. And people are going around wondering who's going to win my, uh, American Idol or uh, who, what about the Academy Awards and the red carpet? There is a color red that we should be concerned about, that we looked at in Joshua. The kind of red that was on the mercy seat. The kind of red that was put over the lentils and the post. The red cord that came down out of Rahab's window. People were more concerned about red. Thank you, Jesus. Wonderful. We see our for